The Working Artist Project is brought to you by Second Line Arts Collective. Learn how you can support at secondlinearts.org. We're creating a platform for those who are curious. One that tells the story from the artist's perspective. Moments in time, captured from the innovators who are reshaping dance, music, theater, and the visual arts. This is The Working Artist Project. Welcome everyone to The Working Artist Project. I'm Noah Jackson sitting in here for uh, Gregory Ajit, and we're here to discuss uh, the news project uh, with Andy Farber. And we're gonna also talk about more about his life as a musician, his career, and some of the things that uh, most people don't really have an, an idea about when it comes to being a, a working jazz musician. And just to get some insight to what it, uh, what it's really like to be a creative, but also have a life in that creativity. Uh, and I'm here also with my good friend, uh, Darian Douglas, fellow uh, musician. Yeah. What's up, y'all? What's up? What's up? What's up? Noah, man, you you real um you real formal, Noah. That's all I'm going to say, man. You you're real formal. I like it. I like it, man. You got your work voice on, man. You know how when your mama answered the phone? She be like, <laughs> you never know who you're talking to, so you gotta come correct. You, you, <laughs> your mama pick up the phone. She be like, "Shut up!" And she be like, oh. <laughs> "That's what you, that's what you just did to my audience, man." What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Working Artist Project. Today, uh, I I am honored to have the great Noah Jackson, one of my one of my really good friends, and also. Uh, uh, I would say one of the humans who inspires me most on this earth. And, and y'all going to see in a minute when we get into this conversation how insightful and intelligent and talented this guy is. Uh, you know, Noah, we got somebody dope, like you said today. We got Mr. Andy Farber. And I never met Andy t- except for 10 minutes ago. And, and he seems <laughs> like a, su- a super dope cat. One thing that's super impressive about Andy is his bio. Have you read this, Noah? This is crazy. I'm going to yeah. just take a... Look, I, I mean, not many people can say they work with Paul Simon, you know, Stevie Wonder, B.B. King. I'm from Mississippi, so you know that hit me. You know what I'm saying? Wenton Marcellus, like, must I go on? Bob Dylan, are you fucking kidding me? Who is this guy, man? How does he do it? We're going to find out. We're going to find out. So, uh, but without further ado, let's let's welcome the one and only Andy Farber to the Working Artist Project. What's up, Andy? You there? There he is. There he is. Hey. <laughs> I, I had to uh, go and get my drink. Oh, okay. Which is, uh, my, it's one of my podcast beverages. Oh, I see. Oh, nice. And where are we starting tonight? What, what, what is that, man? Uh, this is a little Campari and a little gin and a little uh, vermouth oh. and a little twist of orange over ice. And oh, uh, that'll straighten me out for the next... Uh, a little bit there. Setting my wife up in the kitchen with the uh, the little Bose speaker that you could look, you know, the <laughs> absolutely Bluetooth man. speaker. Absolutely. So Andy, dig it, man. Let's I want to start. I want to start where we left off and just kind of mm-hmm. ask you, how in the hell do you work with this diverse group of musicians? And they're all the greatest of the great. How does that even happen? Well, the explanation for that actually is that um, every year Jazz at Lincoln Center does a fundraising gala. 
and uh, they like to collaborate with musicians in uh, different parts of the musical arts. And uh, they will have a Winton Septet or the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra perform with uh, different guests. So every once in a while, uh, I'll get a commission to write an arrangement for the band plus one of the guests. So um, I think the first time may have been uh, Stevie Wonder wanted to play Giant Steps with Winton Septet. And Stevie kind of plays uh, kind of in a, you know, like Herbie Hancock, Kenny Drew <laughs> neighborhood <laughs> style when he plays jazz piano, which is pretty good. Um and then, uh, you know, different people. You had mentioned Bob Dylan. I didn't actually meet him. Uh, he sang with Winton Septet, and uh, it was really just uh, the seven of them, uh, the eight, I guess, Septet plus Bob at the rehearsal. And uh, for whatever, I didn't go to that concert, but I heard the recording of it. Um, and B.B. King and Ray Charles, they would just get different people all the time. So Paul Simon did a whole concert with them for one of those fundraisers uh on another time it was um uh the the rock group uh crosby stills and nash mm. where, uh, they were guests with the uh jazz Lincoln center orchestra no young <laughs> i don't think so i was <laughs> i was actually thinking of another group for a minute the power tool chorus which is crosby stills black and decker that's a joke that i stole from martin mull uh, I don't know why that came across my uh, mind. Probably the uh, gin, right? Keep drinking it. Don't <laughs> stop drinking it. So, so it sounds like you're kind of you're you're the man behind the sound of of one of the greatest uh, musicians and big bands of our generation, no? of multiple. Well, I like to be. I'm one of the group. Uh, sometimes, I mean, there are a lot of very gifted writers. Uh, besides Winton, who's one of my favorite composers of this generation, anyway which I realized 30, nearly 30 years ago, he made a record called uh, Blue Interlude, where he wrote a piece of music, a half an hour long for his septet. And uh, he took, the, it's sort of like a programmatic piece based upon these imaginary characters that he invented, sort of like a, you know, a, a Romeo and Juliet type story. And, um, and, and he wrote little light motifs or, you know, short, melodic cells for each character and then develop that over the course of the piece. And uh, I, I was really quite taken with it because I've been studying a lot of Duke Ellington's music and it seemed to be uh, one, like the, one of the few contemporary pieces at the time that had that kind of uh, development of harmonic material, but still let all the musicians in the band do their thing. Right. And Winton had, I mean, at the time, like Wes Anderson and uh, Todd Williams and Wycliffe Gordon. So, you know, that all the wind players had very strong personalities and he was able to write things for them that exploited what they did. It's like, you know, this is great, but it wouldn't have the same effect if it was a different alto player or a different trombone player. And uh, Reggie Veal and uh, Herlin Riley and um, Marcus Roberts. That was the band on that record. <laughs> yeah, and Marcus also is a very good composer, too, who... Uh, I hate to use the term people tend to sleep on, but uh, they don't realize how um, how he gets into a very similar kind of serious development mm -hmm. of uh, melodic cells like uh, Duke Ellington yeah. and um, 
there are these exercises for composers to do uh, that will help strengthen that muscle of developing motives. And Bob Brookmeyer used to have these exercises that he called note cell exercises for his composition students. And uh, if you get into that, you can figure out how you can develop one, two, or three little ideas for maybe an hour on end, you know, mm -hmm. without having to go back to the well and create new things. You can extract the most juice out of just a few little things without it seeming uh, overly repetitive or dull, you know. All the great teams that have done that over uh, in the past, uh, to, and it, it seems almost obvious, right? Like, you just take a couple ideas and you develop them and you kind of mess around with them. You create this soup, this gumbo, and then it turns into something nice. But uh, I love uh, making food analogies, by the way, too, because I like to eat, obviously. Um, <laughs> right. You make, I mean, Winton does that too, because he's from New Orleans. So he likes to make New Orleans food analogies, like gum, comparing things to gumbo. But, yeah, um, well, I make very good crawfish etouffee. From a Jew from Long Island, I make the best crawfish etouffee you can have. Oh, man. You got to make the roux very slowly. Okay. That's right. So you don't burn the roux. <laughs> I'm going to come check that out and be the judge of that, bro. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, in Mississippi. but It's very difficult to get live crawfish around here, though. That, you, know, you know, that is, I was just telling my wife that. Mm -hmm. Like, the, the, first, the thing is, you know, I hate, I know you're a New Yorker, but you can't really get seafood up here, dog. It's not, when you eat seafood back home, it tastes like the ocean. It, they well, caught it that day, you know? There is some of that. You just have to know where to go. So Little Italy in the Bronx, you know, Arthur Avenue. Yep. And there are a lot of those Asian markets because uh, a lot of the Asian markets really take their fish seriously. So there's a couple of places around here, which is a Korean chain called H Mart, but they've got a really top of the line fishmonger in there. And the fish is right out of the sea. And it's that fresh. And by the way, sometimes they do have live crawfish and we're really changing the subject, but this is the super important stuff. No, this, this, is, important. Important. this is important. Uh, blue claw crabs. You know, yeah. and of course, my favorite is Maine lobster, but it's stupid expensive this year. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know but what that I, is. I did want to bring it back. back okay. Around to, to, to some music. <laughs> I got to keep us in line. I, we hanging out. But but like you, you did mention writing music for uh, for individuals and certain personalities and that particular band of Winton's with, with Veal and Hurl and, you know, those I, I saw those guys when I was in, in like middle school. And it's the reason why I, you know, I was like, oh man, jazz musicians. Wow. You know, the first real ones I saw. And so, but, but anyway, just the idea of writing for specific people, is that still alive? Like, can you still do that in, in the modern context? I know, I know Duke could and, and Winton can because he's in a certain situation, but. When you have the same people, uh, it's easier to do. And um, I don't have. Uh, steady work with my big band, but uh, when I do, I try to get the same core group of people. Yeah, and uh, they have um, individual personalities that um, I like to write for, like uh, Dan Block, who plays the clarinet, tenor saxophone. Actually, he play pretty much plays all the woodwinds. But in in the big band on this recording, he's playing in the saxophone section on the ten on one of the tenor books and playing the clarinet solos. 
but he's got a, a unique approach to clarinet that's not common today. And it's interesting because it's sort of like a combination of things from the past and things that are more contemporary. I mean, if you can imagine a clarinet player who's an, or a saxophone player who's equally, you know, influenced by Russell Procope and Barney Bigard, but also, you know, uh, like Joe Henderson and Joe Farrell or something, right? Mm. And Danny's kind of like that. I mean, he gets, Scott Robinson's a guy that's like that too. You know, he gets these influences from everywhere and every piece of music he's le ever listened to and every musician is just part of his DNA and it comes out his own way, right? Yeah. Um, you know, like I I'm sitting here thinking and Noah knows about this, this too. It's kind of like, I think sometimes listeners or people who are listening to this podcast aren't necessarily musicians, and so they they're, they don't really understand that part of it, like the the history and knowledge of the music and how it comes out on the horn. They may be thinking more like, "Oh, this dude is mean," or this like, like how do we put it in, in a in in a way that someone who isn't in in and uh, well, think about it like an actor, or an actress, right? You know, you can think of. Uh, an iconic actor or actress that has a very specific kind of thing, you know, like not like Meryl Streep who could do anything, but somebody that like Jack Nicholson is a very specific kind of actor. Right. And if you were writing a screenplay and you had Jack Nicholson in mind, you know, you're not going to get, um, you know, uh, Morgan Freeman, who's a great actor, but he doesn't have the same vibe. And sure, he would do a good job, but you're not going to get that Jack Nicholson thing with anybody except for Jack, right? And it's the same thing like writing for a musician. If you were Duke Ellington and you were writing something that's specifically for Clark Terry and uh, Clark couldn't make it, who are you going to get? <laughs> you know, <laughs> nobody sounds like that exactly, right? <laughs> so there are these things that are very specific. And then you could write music. That just like any really good swinging trumpet player can do this, but it, there's not a particular style that it has to be. It could be whatever, Donald Byrd, or it could be Joe Newman. You know, it's like whatever, right? And today, you know, you could like, uh, you know, a good lead alto player could play the top part as long as they have good time and good style. And there's a lot of people that I like to play with, you know. Um, and they sound different. Like Dave Glasser is one of my favorite lead alto players. And so is Mark Gross. And they're very different style players, but they all, you know, their personalities work for that kind of music. So it could be either or, you know, and then some things have to be more specific and some things just, you know, hey, whatever you try, you know, maybe it'll be great. It just all depends on the piece. And some music is, uh, you know, more about uh, the ensemble and uh, some music is more about the individual soloists. Every piece is different, you know. No, absolutely. I'm with that. You know, actually, I'm pretty curious, you know, since we're on the Working Artists podcast, right, project, you know, it, it, people don't necessarily get a chance to speak with those who make a living out of composing. You know, I, I, I know that's a very niche market. It's a very specific thing and it can be not the easiest thing to try to get work so my question to you is uh well a what's your process compositionally but also your process to have your music played and heard mm -hmm. and maybe you can go into some background with even just how you kind of got into uh the the network to allow your your composition life to to blossom 
Well, I always was interested in uh, music from uh, an early age. Uh, to 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 <laughs> to quote one of my mentors, who's a saxophone player from Detroit, the late great Billy Mitchell, when he was mm-hmm. once interviewed, he says, "I was born at an early age." <laughs> but, uh, my father played the drums, and he also played uh, uh, clarinet, and saxophone, and flute. But he had been a drummer; that was his main instrument. And his brother had been a saxophone player turned pianist than a composer and uh who's who's still around and in theory is supposed to be writing music from time to time and both of them had extensive record collections and would put them on and i enjoyed listening to them. uh i didn't distinguish necessarily between different styles of music when i was a kid my mother had uh a collection of i don't know if you remember eight track cartridge you know eight track cassettes remember those things oh yeah she had some of the popular (laughs) recordings of the day things like uh simon and garfunkel bridge over trouble waters and um what else did she have carol king tapestry and um Mm. uh, things by like gordon lightfoot the folk singer or um jim croce and what else did she listen to uh the band uh bread and chicago Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, James Taylor, that kind of stuff. Is there any more Nero in there? Probably. Uh, <laughs> that sounds Peter Nero, the piano player. They had one of those. No relation. Um, <laughs> and uh, then we had all my father's records, which were mostly records that he had bought. Probably from his senior year of high school for the next five years. So a lot of what my dad had were uh, prestige records and Riverside records and Blue Note records that were recorded between like 1955 and 1960, 61. Atlantic, right? So we had uh, all of John Coltrane's Atlantic recordings. We had um, all of the miles on prestige, the Coltrane on prestige, very little miles on Columbia. I think we had roundabout midnight and uh, the live thing at Carnegie Hall with Gil Evans' band, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, did not have Kind of Blue, actually. What other uh, Columbia records did we? Oh, um, we had like Ornette Coleman records on uh, Atlantic, like Change of the Century. Um, we had uh, probably almost every Donald Byrd record on Blue Note. Um, and my uncle Mitch had studied with Donald at uh, camp. So there were these band camps that were essentially run by, I think they were called national stage band camps run by uh, 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 Stan Kenton's band. Stan Kenton. And Donald Byrd was a teacher at one of these things. So that's where they met. And uh, so my uncle Mitch, he played piano and he would have been in the band in 1961, 62, where like Dave Sanborn would play alto in the big band and, was heavily into, you know, Paul Desmond or something. And um, who else was, I think uh, Keith Jarrett was a student there and Randy Brecker was in the, was a student there. And um, Marv Stam may have been like on the faculty, but he was very young. Um, So Mitch became tight with Donald and Donald recorded two of his tunes 
in '67, uh, I think, in '69. So there's a record, a Donald Byrd record called Blackjack. Yeah. And uh, my uncle Mitch has a tune on there called El Dorado. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> that's so that record was played in my house over and over again, and it was played at my grandmother's house. So I was one of the few kids in my nursery school at the age of four that had the Hank Mobley and Sonny Red solo memorized from those Donald <laughs> Bird records. And um, I remember, I mean, I still have a copy of that, that Donald signed and it's, uh, you know, Cedar Walton, Walter Booker, Billy Higgins and uh, Sonny Red and um, Hank Mobley. That was that record. And then there was another one the next year or two years later called uh, Fancy Free, which had uh, Joe Chambers on drums and uh, I think uh, Lou Tabakin's on some of it and Frank Foster's on some of it playing tenor and Jerry Dodgen and Julian Priester and uh, Duke Pearson. So anyway, that was another album. And he had a t- tune on there called The Uptowner. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, th- that became the music that was in the house. And I would frequently, I mean, I have these early memories, like three, four years old of my father putting on a, a record and watching the label like the blue note label spin around or that yellow and black prestige label. Right. You know, and uh, listening to the sound of Rudy Van Gelder's piano, which would have been usually the first thing you heard on one of those things. So I just love that sound, you know? Um, And then, Oh, well, my mother had a a cassette, an eight track of uh, Stan Getz live at the cafe, a go-go with Gary Burton when he was 19 playing vibes and Astro Gilberto singing mm. gets a go-go. And there's some bossa, a lot of bossa novas and sambas on there. Uh, so I got it. I like um, Brazilian music probably because of that Stan Getz record. Uh, and then I found out later that it wasn't just Tom Jobim and people like that writing these things, but there's a, a Brazilian bossa nova on there called only trust your heart but it turns out it was written by benny carter so one of my oh, wow. favorite bossa nova is actually written by american guy wow who later became one of my heroes so um so that's kind of how i got into the music in the first place i think maybe i've gone back too far <laughs> have i gone back too far no, in time no no that's that's cool I, i'm i'm sitting here hearing all this these jazz influences and you know i i came up in 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 tupac and NWA and you know what I'm saying like like Snoop and st- I'm just curious what else were you listening yeah, to Yeah I say what, I, what? I I never liked the uh I mean you know there was something about the sound of uh like distortion guitar that I didn't like you know oh, It's really? like I didn't dislike pop music cuz I guess I liked the the Paul, the Simon and Garfunkel stuff and the James Taylor things but uh you know when when I got to be in junior high school or high school and kids were listening to um uh, hard rock and heavy metal. I, I had no interest in that. Uh, wow. But because I'm from Huntington, Long Island, you have to like Billy Joel, okay. who <laughs> writes great melodies, by the way, with okay. proper chord changes and like real harmony. Uh, People see. in Jersey like Springsteen, but on Long Island, you like Billy Joel. Uh, okay. All right. Where? <laughs> Long Island. Come on. <laughs> Long Island. You have to be from south of the expressway to pronounce it like that. <laughs> there were a lot of musicians that lived out there in those days. Yeah. Uh, people that had moved out from the city. And um, so, in fact, my uh, next door neighbor actually lived two or three doors down was a jazz trombone player named Jack Carmen. And 
he was my elementary school band director. And Jack was born the same day, the same year as John Coltrane, but he was more of a swing musician. Like his great hero was Irby Green and Jack Teagarden. Those were his heroes. And mm-hmm. he dropped out of high school to go on the road with Don Redman. Hmm. So he went with the Redman band to Europe in 1946 or 45 or whatever. Is that right after the war? Playing lead trombone in the band at 19 years old, sitting in between Butter Jackson and Tyree Glenn. And the tenor saxophone soloist in that band was Don Bias. Wow. Wow. Now, the real question I have, Andy, speaking about your, your uncle, I think, right? Your uncle Mitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, did he get credit for a uh, songwriting credit for those tunes on the record? Yeah. Yeah. So he gives credit on the liner notes and on the label. I love it. Yeah. And, and Duke Pearson recorded uh, El Dorado with his big band a little later. Mm-hmm. So you I, I think I'd be composing, too, if, if I had that kind of as a matter of background. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, I like, and also my father had a close friend, actually was his best friend for probably 60 years, uh, who was a piano player named Carl Stroman. And Carl made his living uh, for many years uh, as a public school music teacher and led jazz bands and things like that in the, in the high school, but wrote big band arrangements for publishing. And he got in on the ground floor of that because before 1970, if you had a high school jazz band, you had to buy stock arrangements that were written probably for professionals, published arrangements. But he uh, got in on the ground floor of writing music specifically to the skill level of uh, young bands mm-hmm. uh, and uh, with Alfred Music. So uh, Carl started to do that and get very successful in publishing and then later would write for different types of ensembles like wind bands and choirs and all that kind of stuff, which I think he still does. Um, but at the time that my dad met him, the, uh, they would play together frequently and Carl played piano kind of in the style of Bobby Timmons, which is kind of funny for a really tall, blonde, blue eyed Norwegian looking cat to play like Bobby <laughs> Timmons, but he did, he could play the blues, still can Carl <laughs> bad cat. Um, and uh, so he was an influence also. So he was the guy that I first sat down with where he showed me how to uh, notate music and, and uh, transpose for the different instruments in the band. And um, so it was really Carl also, along with uh, Mitch, the two of them mm-hmm. that uh, helped me a lot in my early years trying to figure out how to get how to get the ideas from your brains on paper so that other people can get the idea in their brains. And then we all play it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to go ahead, man. I think this is a great opportunity for us to go ahead and play, um, play one of your tunes and uh, let the people hear your genius at work. So that's uh, nice of you to say <laughs> this you, one you is... read my, uh, in, <laughs> my introduction perfectly. Well, see, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, check this one out. This one is uh, Feet and Frames. Feet and Frames. 
Too much of that you got to go out there and buy this record man. <laughs> <laughs> you got to buy the record it's called early bird evening your uh, early blue evening oh my bad early blue evening how did i get that wrong and so y'all make sure y'all go uh get it from a langston it. hughes uh poem a very oh. very short langston oh, hughes poem. oh yeah i was gonna yeah. say i heard a lot of uh uh duke ellington influence in that in that writing you know duke and uh, langston had a really tight connection back in the day well, uh, not just that. The reason it's called Feet and Frames is because I, a lot of the light motifs or small melodic cells are ones that um, you might hear in uh, television and film music, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, when you're scoring a TV show or a feature film, uh, you would measure uh, the distance of a cue before they had time codes, empty time code in feet, right? So there were 24 frames a second, and, you know, you could have... Uh, frames and then uh feet you know so there's a thousand feet for a reel of film which would be you know 10 minutes of film and things used to be measured in feet frames Um, and Mm -hmm. so not just duke ellington as an influence but also a lot of the composers that wrote film music during the heyday of uh the golden age of film and television scoring and so I grew up watching a lot of things, especially like old Star Trek episodes, mm. where the composers that wrote uh, scores, things like that, or Columbo, or that, you know, they would have a light motif for the different characters. And um, often they'd be repetitive. So that, uh, you know, if Star Trek made 26 episodes a season, but they only scored seven of them, the music editor can go in there and take a cue and put it in an episode that didn't have a score. And if you wrote music that had two bar vamps and four bar vamps and recognizable themes, maybe the music editor would use your stuff and you would get uh, royalties for uh, TV episodes that you didn't even score because they used your music in it. So if you watch a lot of music uh, television from the 60s and early 70s, you will hear a lot of familiar music cues used frequently in those shows. And uh, so that was an influence uh, on this piece. It was okay. a lot like that. Wow, man. We're getting a history lesson today, uh, Noah. I didn't know any of that, man. That's beautiful, man. Yeah, you know, this, this record, what what was the inspiration for, for creating this music? Well, some of it was done a while ago. So there are a few pieces on there that I wrote 30 years ago that I uh, tweaked a bit over time. So, uh, 1991, I wrote a tribute piece. So that's 30 years ago for uh, Clark Terry. So there's a piece on there called symphony for Dr. T. Mm-hmm. 
which is neither a symphony uh, and uh, but Clark Terry, I guess uh, we used to call him Doctor Terry or Doctor T, right? So uh, Brian Pareshi, who plays mostly lead trumpet on the record, but he's a very good jazz player, is a huge admirer of Clark Terry. I mean, who isn't? But he in particular and is influenced by him. And uh, I had him play uh, that feature on the flugelhorn. And um, that piece, again, re uh, touched up a little bit fairly recently within the last 10 years, but I wrote that in uh, 91. Wow. And wow. Uh, what else is on there that's older? There's a few things that are maybe 10 years old, and then there's other things that are pretty new. Feet and Frames is new. Something else called Fanfare and Fair Facts, excuse me, that's new. Um, and uh, what else? So there's that limbo thing, the Holiday Makers, which is, uh, that's pretty new also. Yeah, I wrote that for this recording or shortly before I did the recording. Yeah. And a lot of it was influenced by things that my students were doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a workshop I'm involved in called the BMI Jazz Composers Workshop, which started 30 plus years ago in the late 80s by uh, Bob Brookmeyer and uh, Manny Album and Bert Corral as a workshop for professional jazz musicians who are arrangers to um, hone their skills as composers and find their own identity through composition. Hmm. And uh, for many years, uh, Bob Brookmeyer and Manny um, ran that workshop and then uh, then uh, Bob uh, moved to Europe for a while and Manny uh, continued to do it with uh, the pianist, composer, arranger, Micah Benny, um, who was one of my teachers for a while at the Manhattan School of Music. And then Micah Benny ran it with the pianist, uh, composer, Jim McNeely, for many years. And uh, then Jim took over the workshop when Manny died and... Um, was uh, doing that with the, the pianist composers, Mike, uh, Mike Holliber. And then uh, about six years ago, uh, I began leading the workshop uh, at first with uh, Ted Nash as my associate. And then uh, he got very busy with his touring schedule with Lincoln Center. So I've brought in uh, a tr the trombonist composer, Alan Ferber, but mainly because he has a very cool sounding name. Uh-huh. <laughs> but all seriousness aside uh he's a very good teacher and composer um and just an all-around uh good cat beautiful man yeah man it man is it difficult to get people to play because some some of the music on the record is very era specific is that difficult to do nowadays i said nothing Catherine Russell sings one tune on there. Yeah, I heard it. it I and like it. Catherine has said, and I don't, I don't know where she got this from, but she said, if you have uh, the right people, you don't have to say anything. And if you have the wrong people, there's nothing you can say. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, not, that's not an indictment on anybody's particular skill. There are just people that, understand that language and speak it as a native language. And uh, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there are bass players and drummers that just do different things. If you have a hard bop, you know, small group thing, and you have a drummer that's like, uh, you know, a 
Lewis Hayes and uh, Roy Haynes and Max Roach kind of guy, and you happen to get Kenny Washington or Greg Hutchinson, you don't have to say anything. They speak that language. Or, you know, maybe you had, uh, you know, Dave Weckl, great drummer, one of the best of his generation, but he speaks a slightly different language. So maybe he's not the right guy. Or if you're trying to do something that, you know, sounds like, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, what's a good example? Um, the Ohio players rhythm section and you got Jimmy Cobb, that might not be the right guy. You know what I mean? Right. Does that mm-hmm. make any, so when you have the right people, so this music, I knew these musicians, what their default positions would be stylistically. And you just have a rehearsal, play the music and they know what to do and you don't have to say anything. Right. The only and thing I- you do is, just let them play it a few times. And if, okay, it's a little loud at letter C and we play it a little softer and then at letter F, let's really roar. You know, these minor little yeah. things that you do to polish a performance, but you don't have to get in there and micromanage anything. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I know I listened to this the first time and I was like, damn, this shit is swinging right out the gate. And and before even reading your bio, Andy, I was like, man, this, this sounds kind of like what Lincoln Center is trying to do, you know, but it makes sense because you're one of their writers and, and you know, right away, you, the vibe of that band was on your band. You know, I, I like your, your band's a little bit looser, so I prefer your band. Well, and some of the people in my band have, have toured and played with them. So um, about 25, 24, 25, 26 years ago, I played with them frequently. Yeah. And um, Dan Block, who's in my saxophone section, has... Um, uh, toured with them and generally subs for Victor Goins, but uh, has played a bunch of chairs in that band. And uh, Godwin Louis, who's playing uh, saxophone, playing the, one of the alto chairs, he's uh, he's played with them. And then two of my trombone players were regular members of the band. So Art Barron was in the original version of the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. Uh, he also played with, with Duke Ellington, actually. He's one of the few people on the planet that had been in Duke Ellington's band. I think more people have actually walked on the moon that are around today than have played with Duke. Wow. Uh, but Art is one of the last people to be hired by Duke Ellington. And he was in that very first Jazz and Lincoln Center Orchestra where the trombone section was Art and uh, Britt Woodman and uh, Buster Cooper, I believe. Wow. So all Ellington alumni. Uh, and then my lead trombone player is Wayne Goodman, who also had spent maybe four or five years with the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra with the great trombone section of the three W's, where it was Wycliffe, Wayne, and Westray. Yeah. That was quite the trombone <laughs> section. That's the Blood on the Fields trombone section. Yeah. Um, and then uh, other people in the um, trumpet section have toured or subbed with the band James Zoller and... Uh, Bruce Harris and uh, who else? Uh, Carl Moraghi on baritone. He's also uh, played concerts with Jazz at Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. Um, and James Chirillo, who's on the guitar, he's when they need a guitar player, it's James. So he does all the uh, essentially Ellington concerts with them and uh, very often their uh, holiday Christmas concert, sometimes a tour. So he's one of the regular people in that stable. And the pianist, uh, Adam Birnbaum, I met uh, through Winton, actually. So he was a guy that had gone to uh, Juilliard, but I first encountered him with uh, different things at Lincoln Center. 
Absolutely. Yeah, Adam's a bad dude. All everybody you just named is is like, you know, one of the baddest people on the planet. They all the very Michael fortunate to, for them to uh <laughs> be around and want to play this music and um, yeah. I want to I want to switch switch gears a little bit Noah I mean, you know I, I'm a I'm going to open it up for you to get into this too but um you you put this band together for After Midnight. I'm I'm not really sure if you wrote and arranged the music or if you just assembled the crew with Winton. He uh he was one of the producers and initially the show had been called Cotton Club Parade at City Center. And okay. uh they used, I think, mostly existing transcriptions um, of Duke Ellington stuff that David Berger had transcribed uh, and maybe made some alterations for the show here and there. And uh, it was originally done with the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. And then again, a few years later, by a different band that Winton had put together. And then when they uh, went to Broadway, um, went and asked me to help him put together the band to sort of be uh, a surrogate for him on the, on the ground there. Cause he would be off with Lincoln center doing what they do. Right. Not playing the same show eight times a week. So we put together a different group, uh, which was largely this band. Um, a few people were different because when we made this recording, you know, you set a recording date and then all of a sudden somebody's phone rings and, you know, hey, can you go on the road? And, you know, we we did this whole album in maybe seven hours. It was oh, one wow. day. Jeez, okay. And uh, no overdubs. We're just direct. I mean, it, everyone's in the same room. There's no headphones, no isolation. We just did it the way you'd play a concert, really, and throw the microphones up. We did have three or four rehearsals before that for a right. few hours just to get familiar with some of the newer things. Uh, so on After Midnight, the trumpet section changed well brian Presci was actually doing another show um so we had the great greg gisbert playing lead trumpet on uh after midnight and uh he's uh based in colorado now so he wasn't going to be around for the recording and uh i've been playing with brian Presci for years and he uh is one of my favorite lead trumpet players so of course it's a no-brainer we're going to play with brian um and uh alfonso horn who did After Midnight with us was able to do uh, half of the recording session and then he had to cut town or something. And we were able to get Sean Edmonds, who is another musician I've known for 20 years, who also subbed the show and works frequently with uh, those other cats. And um, so everybody knew each other. Yeah. You know, and, and then also James Burton uh, played trombone in the show uh, and he ended up being on the road when we were doing this. So we were lucky enough to get uh, Dion Tucker, who's one of the finest jazz players and section players and plays lead and he plays plunger. I mean, right. Right. Um, was Jennifer, just, Jennifer, Jennifer was on base on that show. Jennifer was on base on the, this after midnight and uh, here, but I've known her since 1991. Okay. Yeah. I came to see that no, show, man. More than that. Uh, 89 or 90. I met her. Okay. Yeah. She's swinging. Noah. You know, Jennifer, right? I actually don't. I had not had Bro, you got. Hey, she's serious. You got. Yeah, play. she's originally from Salem, Oregon, and was a classical cellist when I met her, who uh, was starting to get serious about jazz bass. Yeah, and uh, then she moved to New York and got very serious very quickly. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
So I've been playing with her for 30 plus years. There's and, a long uh, history of, uh, of, of reformed cellist turned bass players. Uh, <laughs> I think she does still play the cello too. Okay, I definitely got to meet her. I, I, I love to uh, to uh, uh, pick her brain about that whole the whole thing. You know, she's also heavily into Cuban music. You know, it's funny. Um, uh, so this project, I remember. Uh, you know, you're talking about how you assemble a lot of guys from uh, in Lady from um, After Midnight, and uh, it got me to thinking about when you were putting this whole project together. Did you have like a certain audience in mind uh, when you were putting together or were you trying to organize a tour with it? Like right. what was kind of like some of your objectives? For this recording, I just wanted to document some of the things I was writing. And so just to circle back a minute to the BMI workshop, a lot of the writers in the workshop write these long extended works. And uh, it got me thinking, boy, I have not written a lot of serious concert works in a long time. Uh, probably since, well, I don't know when, I mean, at least for big band, um, many years ago, I had a, oh, it was probably about 10, 12 years ago, a little residency at Birdland in New York, where we would play uh, every Sunday before Arturo Farrell's band. And I was writing mostly um, just tap your foot, snap your fingers, you know, four or five, six minute arrangements, nothing too uh, extreme, mainly because you're playing every week and, People are subbing out and leaving town and coming back. You know, you can't have rehearsals all the time. So you want to have things that play themselves down, like, a, you know, an Al Cohn or Billy Byers type arrangement, you know, not anything that's science project music. Uh, so when I did this, I wanted to uh, take kind of a cue from the writers in the BMI workshop and write something that was a little more uh, involved and that I could develop over time. That would be a good concert piece. And I only really ended up writing two things like that for the record. So fanfare on Fairfax and feet and frames. And they're about nine minutes. I mean, when I first wrote them, they were about 15 and I just trimmed the fat and got it down, you know? Um, and they're not tunes, you know, per se, they, they kind of take out a little bit of a journey. Yeah. I, I, I love the whole through compute through compose almost uh, concept of where you can kind of be going from one place to another and allows your ear to kind of let you get lost a little bit into the, to the music, into the textures of the sound. You know, um, what were some, and I know we have a, a mixed bag of uh, people who are watching this, so I, I don't wanna get too technical, but I am curious about like, what were some of the things you had in mind with, when you were uh, putting these compositions together. Uh, I know you see you had built clusters and such, but were, were you trying to give voice to a certain personality or were you trying to tell a story with uh, an overall story with, with the music? Uh, what, what was kind of that, that process for you? Well, with, with feet and frames, there were just these little snippets of things that um, I had transcribed or they were influenced by as I said before, some film and TV music, if I really want to give you the secret formula for what it is, specifically some of the scores written by Gerald Freed, a composer who's still around, he's probably about 93 or four, who wrote a lot of television music in the 50s and 60s and 70s and early 80s. Gerald Freed had been, I, I got to talk to him for about an hour on the phone. Uh, 
he wrote for the original Star Trek, about five or six scores for that. And um, I got us an email address and called him, or, you know, sent him an email telling him how much I love this music. And he called me up and we had a talk for an hour and a half or whatever it was. And he was living in an assisted living facility in Connecticut. And he had been an oboe major at Juilliard in 1949. Wow. And when I was a kid, 20 years later, in 1979, 30 years later, uh, I was studying oboe because I thought, well, I'm never going to get into a real college. I got to go to a music conservatory. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in those days, you know, classical saxophones, yeah, you know, and I suck at the clarinet, or as my children say, I'm a mediocre clarinet player. <laughs> they only say that because they heard Squidward say that on SpongeBob. But, uh, <laughs> but it's true. So when I was in junior high school, I took up the oboe, and I was studying with a woman named Lois Wan, who had taught at Juilliard for many years and was still there. But Gerald Fried was studied oboe with her. And to pay the bills to get through school, he played tenor saxophone and dance bands at night. So he was basically doing the opposite of me. He was studying oboe and playing saxophone on the side where I wanted to be a saxophone player, but played classical oboe on the side. And he would go to, you know, 52nd Street and listen to Coleman Hawkins and all that stuff. Uh, and, he, and he grew up with uh, Stanley Kubrick in the Bronx. So when Kubrick made his first film, the only musician he knew was his old buddy, Gerald Freed, who was going to Juilliard, called him up. And that's when Jerry got into writing for film and he moved out to California and made a career about it and all kinds of different styles. So not just serious scores for like Star Trek, but even like, like he did like most of the Gilligan's Island episodes, you know? Wow. And uh, he, he became very friendly with Quincy Jones. So he ended up doing a lot of orchestrations for him. And Quincy was the uh, music, the lead composer on Roots. Uh, and so Jerry did a lot of those and ended up scoring other things for David Walper, who had produced Roots, like uh, Roots, the next generation or whatever the sequel was to that. And then when Quincy did bigger features later, like Color Purple, he got Jerry to work on that as an orchestrator. And then wow. you know, so he had a very good career as a lead composer and working with Quincy and all these other people. And he could write jazz, he, he could write orchestral music and um he could make uh, a small group the size of a jazz big band or smaller sound much bigger. And mm -hmm. he would write a lot of motifs with a uh, few notes and develop the hell out of them. And, uh, you know, you just watch a Star Trek episode, like a second season episode called Friday's Child, which has an original score by Jerry Freed. And he has these different motives that develop the whole time. I mean, it's, it, it, you, you, met, you remember them. So I took some of his harmonic ideas from that stuff and turned that into feet and frames, which is why it's called feet and frames because it's, you know, like TV cue music. Um, and uh, so like at the end, everything is backwards for a half a chorus, you know? Um, I mean, I did a lot of the standard operational music school techniques of developing motives where you play it backwards or, in retrograde, or you play it upside down, in, in, inverted, or upside down and backwards, retrograde inversion, right? Those are your standard ways of taking a motive and doing something with it. And then you could add to it or take things away and just have snippets or, you know, make a, uh, an interval larger or smaller. You know, there's all kinds of things that you can do to play around with uh, 
some different ideas, but there's really only a few little ideas in that piece. And I exhausted what I could before it started to get boring to me in uh, about nine minutes or however long that thing is. And, and when you asked me, by the way, um, what was the target audience? And really, it's gotten to this point where the target audience are people who are about my age who are me. I'm the target <laughs> audience. I'm writing music for me now, right? Um, and, yep. and then the other one was I used to try to actually justify every note in a composition by how is this related to what came before it and what am I you know, developing? And a lot of the things that I tell my students to do, which I think is great when you're starting out, and I probably did it for 20-something years, but at a certain point, I just started to ask myself, and this, again, is probably just watching too much television, but I love the show The West Wing. Do you guys watch The West Wing or reruns of that? Sure. No. Where Martin Sheen plays the fictional, the president of the United States that we would want, right? Mm-hmm. And at the end of each episode, he'll have his staff in the Oval Office and he'll say, what's next, right? That's one of the things that would be um, frequently uttered at the end of an episode. Okay, what's next? So, Sometimes when I have a musical idea, I'll write it down and then I'll just say, what's next? And the first thing that comes to mind, which is like improvising, right? When you are playing a solo, whether it's walking a bass line or playing a solo, you're in this moment and you're constantly asking yourself, what's next? Except you're so engrossed in the moment of performing that you don't actually say, well, what am I going to play next? You just actually kind of do it. Um, And... uh, so I tried that as an experiment with uh, a fanfare on Fairfax. I had this one line that I heard in my head, which is the opening phrase of the piece, which almost sounds like a 1960s or 70s like TV show kind of thing, unison saxophones, like Billy May or something. And it just went from there. I said, well, what happens after that? Okay, what happens after that? But I also did have a little story in mind. So it's kind of programmatic in the way that I concocted a little narrative, which I don't tell people about on the, you know, on the record and the liner notes, but it, it helped me to, to uh, create the, the, the material that got developed for that piece. That's beautiful, man. I, I figured you out, bro. This whole time I, I was trying to figure out your influences and your influences are TV shows. Like, Yeah, I watch t- too much television. You're you a TV guy, man. <laughs> and the funny thing is I don't watch television now. I mean, what? we don't even, we, we don't have broadcast television. But you don't need it. You got the internet. Well, that's true. We have the, yeah, right. So we're, what were we watching? We're watching The Morning Show and Ted Lasso on, on Apple TV. Um, but the stuff that I watched growing up, um, I think a lot of the music a lot of everything that you're exposed to in that first decade or two of life stays with you for a long time. Yeah, that's why I only play Aretha Franklin and Coltrane for my baby girl. You know what I'm saying? Well, either that or you <laughs> only have a collection of music that was recorded on Atlantic. Yeah, right. There you go. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Look, listen, man. Andy, we're we coming up on time, man. But before we go, I definitely want to give you an opportunity to tell all the people where to buy your records and any any other merchandise you got and how to connect with you, DM you, 
where you well, live. I'm, I'm on uh, <laughs> I'm on the Facebook. Hey, um, right. So uh, just look for me, Andy Farber, on Facebook. And the record, early blue evening. I was going to hold one up for dramatic effect. Oh damn! And, get uh, it, get it. Early blue evening, y'all. I hope it's a vinyl record. You got a vinyl back there? You know, it's funny you ask that. I thought I would put this out on the CD and as downloads first. And uh, if things go well, uh, I would take about 40 minutes, 35 or 40 minutes of the best stuff from here. I mean, it's all the best stuff. That's right. But I would take 35 or 40 minutes as a Sophie's Choice and uh, put it on an LP. Okay. Uh, so uh, this, uh, and, and by the way, the photograph uh, was taken by my neighbor and good friend uh, Kenny Sargent, who also, if you're on Facebook, is the uh, the administrator and the creator of um, uh, the uh, Harold Mayburn appreciation page. So if you're a fan of Harold Mayburn, uh, check out that uh, page on the Facebook. Uh, but I'm there on the Facebook and also Andy Farber and his orchestra. We have a Facebook page. And uh, the the album is on Artist Share Records. And uh, if you probably Google Andy Farber uh, and his orchestra or Early Blue Evening or Artist Share, you will come up with their website and um, you can uh, get the recording there. And if any of your viewers slash listeners or viewer listeners are voting members of uh, the Recording Academy, please uh, <laughs> consider us because we're in the first round of uh, of uh, Grammy uh, voting and um, trying to uh, get some nominations because uh, that stuff is good capital and currency to, to get to do the next thing, to have the privilege of getting to do the next thing. Uh, this would this would really help. Absolutely. All right, y'all heard it here first. So go check out Andy on Facebook. You know what I'm saying? Check him out. Hit him in the DMs. But more importantly, hit that Google button and type in early blue evening. Early and, blue uh, evening. You can you can dig it at Artist Share. But if you if you type that in in Google, you're gonna find it. Buy it five times. And uh, everybody on the Grammys, if y'all listening out there, come on, do the right thing, man. Be on the right side of history, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Andy, man, thank you so much for coming on the Working Artist Project. It's been my great pleasure. Yeah. And uh, I'm Darian Douglas. And I'm Noah Jackson. There you go. He got it. He got it. Noah's <laughs> first night on the show. <laughs> and... Uh, this is the Working Artist Project, and we'll catch y'all later. Peace.